Welcome to Prima's 2021 podcast series. My name is Shonda Ragland. I am the Director of Education at Prima. On this Prima podcast, Dan Hurley and Brad Wilson will discuss how to educate employees on workers' compensation without giving the store away. Dan is the risk manager for the city of Chesapeake, Virginia. Brad is the Southeast Territory Sales Manager at PMA Management Corporation. We will also be joined by Prima's Education Coordinator, Taekwon Gilbert. Taekwon will moderate the discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Dan, Brad, thank you for joining us today. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Taekwon. Good morning. So to start off, what is the biggest challenge with regards to introducing a TPA to a self-administered program? Well, I'm going to start off. I guess one of the biggest challenges is that sometimes staff are used to the way things were done kind of in a personal nature with a self-administered program. I think primarily the biggest problem is that uh, in a self-administered program, sometimes the volume of claims actually limits the time that a self-administered staff has. So sometimes claims may have been accepted that weren't totally investigated. And I think as Brad will speak about probably in a minute, as you know, sometimes the workers' comp claim that seems simple then turns into something due to complexities with, you know, the type of injury that then may progress to something more serious. And so when a TPA comes on board, a little more detailed, a little more thorough, you know, trying to maintain a pretty good record. And so sometimes I think that's a shock to some employees who are not used to what they may consider an investigative procedure, but it's a proper documentation of all claims just to make sure that whatever a city is going to pay for is going to be compensable. And then I'll turn it over to Brad. All right. Thanks, Dan. I think that's a very good point that we'll use the term investigation because we just we literally need to know the facts. We want to find out what happened, compare that against the, the relevant case law for workers' compensation, and make the compensability decision on behalf of both the client and the injured worker. One of the big challenges is, as Dan mentioned, that the time that maybe the self-administered folks had when they were taking care of the program, they may not have had time to deal with the volume that was out there, whereas the TPA gives you the opportunity to spread out those claims amongst more folks so that they have more time to investigate and corroborate each incident accordingly. And I think that one of the other challenges, Dan, you may agree with me, is folks just don't always understand what workers' compensation is. They think of it as simply a a benefit program, not unlike health insurance. It is a a benefit in a sense, but it's one that is governed by each state's Workers' Compensation Act, not the plan that the employer puts together. So it has the, the insurance aspect of it, not just benefit program, and getting everyone to understand that and that that's the TPA's role, I think, is another challenge. Would you agree, Dan? I would. I think that one thing I would add, too, is it's uh, communication from city staff and risk staff has got to be that you've got to break some of the myth-busting about a TPA. I think sometimes we found that uh, employees assumed that TPA got more money from denying a claim, you know, when actually that's not true, of course, but also they lose money because they generally get a percentage of the medical savings that, uh, that come with that claim, or that a TPA actually makes unilateral decisions about claim being disqualified, a term we like to use, when in fact it's a decision made that the adjuster brings to our attention with their supervisor if a claim should be disqualified, and that we actually have an internal panel review with that adjuster. So it's not that the TPA makes independent decisions. 
to basically deny claim or disqualify medical. So we try to bring that to the attention of employees that it's it's uh, it's a collective response, what I call a triple rinse review. So we never want to really deny a claim that's not you know should be accepted. And so those are just some of the myths that you have to break. I think with the TPA coming on for the first time. No, that's a very good point. We we do not try. The TPA does not try to function as as a hatchet man, so to speak, uh, and just to to cut costs at the expense of the the injured employee. We are working with the city and with the employee, ultimately to to make sure that the right outcome under the law is, is what's seen and what results. When do you feel it is necessary to have a department meeting for reviewing workers' compensation policies? Well, I'll start off on that one. One of the things okay. we find sometimes with, with workers' comp issues is that sometimes a division or department seems to have a cultural perception as a whole as to how the workers' compensation process actually works. And where we usually see that as a problem comes in where sometimes in that division, there might be an individual who is trying to act as a go-between uh, to help the employee with the adjuster. So in other words, they spend more time talking to the adjuster than the employee. In cases where the, the employee has problems expressing themselves or there's some communication issue with the employee, that's understandable, and I, I certainly can see why that would be appropriate in that situation. But when there is a constant interaction between the adjuster and the employee, uh, you know, sometimes information gets funneled because it's not direct. So one of the things we try to do, we go to the department of that division and talk about how the workers' comp program works like a mini orientation, but we encourage the employee to basically talk to the adjuster and basically develop a relationship and so that they're not getting information channeled. I mean, obviously, they need help sometimes with uh, an individual from the department to be the go-between, but we really like to see that separated so that there's first contact. And uh, I think that just helps communication better. We also then also talk about if they have problems communicating with, with an adjuster or whatever else, for whatever reason, they can always call our risk management office. And one of the things we do is that we always send our employees that are injured a what we call a first touch notice. It's an email to the employee. If they don't have email, it goes to their supervisor who hands it to them, recognizing their specific injury, puts down our contact numbers, puts down the third-party administrator's 24-hour number. They don't have a contact, but also encourages them to come to us for problems. So sometimes you have to get out there in the department itself when you notice there's that cultural problem and uh, try to break through that and encourage this one-on-one, but also answer any questions. Um, One of the things I did the last time I went out was I brought my laptop with me and I told the group in the meeting I was at that if they had any specific issues, I could go into an empty office and just see them one at a time or, you know, talk about their claim in depth and maybe give them some direct information if they're not clear what's going on with their claim. So I think going out and having direct contact with those cultural areas is very important. Agreed, Dan. From the TPA's perspective, from on our side, we want the adjuster to have a rapport with the injured worker so that they're working together throughout the recovery process, working hopefully to return to work safely as soon as possible. But we also want the department's as well as risk management and ourselves to have a rapport. When you have, for instance, a a safety officer or someone like that in a given department who's responsible for uh, reporting claims or acting somewhat on behalf of their their team, their staff, we want them to know our adjuster so that they they have a conversation when need be and that everyone has trust in the process. It's not meant to be an adversarial process. I know people get concerned. There's legitimate anxiety when uh, someone gets injured at work as to what's going to happen, who's going to pay bills, all those things that matter at the kitchen table. We want 
our adjusters to be in touch with the injured worker to give them that reassurance that things are going to take place as they should, what the benefits available are, and that sort of thing. And if, if it's not working, I think that's a good time to go out and meet with, let's say, the department heads or, or representatives so that they know who we are. They have our contact information, similar to how Dan said, they send out risk management first touch letter. If you have a concern, call us. Let us talk through it so that there's trust that when you call, you're going to get the right answer uh, and a, a feeling that, that it's a relationship for, meant for everyone, that it's not adversarial. And we've successfully done that with clients over the years. Do you find that most employees understand segregation? Well, I'll, uh, I'll start that one oh, first. I, I okay. think that, uh, it's important to discuss that with employees because I don't. I think that some of them certainly do, but I don't think the one. The one thing you want to clearly address to them is that the city is going to make a recovery, and uh, that they need to understand that it's, it's the attempt is at a full recovery. So sometimes when employees sue for pain and suffering, and so we don't certainly don't discourage that because the city would like to see a, re, a decent recovery. But I think the employee has to understand just because you may have an insured who has a hundred thousand dollar you know coverage, that if uh, if they pursue the pain and suffering, and the city has a $78,000 lien, it's going to diminish that lien significantly. So what we try to do is explain what subrogation is and discuss with them about talking with their attorney to make sure they clearly understand what subrogation is as far as the city's recovery and what the city's going to get, because obviously the attorney is going to get their one-third, or they might try to mitigate it down in a larger claim. Uh, but the other thing we want to give them emphasis on, too, is that things that actually drive the subrogation, such as medical bills, of course, but also kind of carefully say time out of work. Sometimes employees seem to think, well, if I stay out of work, it's only a small population that will enhance their pain and suffering claim. And maybe it does, but then again, it's also another cost that's going to be involved with segregation. So we try to give them a big picture of understanding what that, that means and that the city is entitled to a recovery. And I'll turn it to Brad. And likewise, we want to do the same thing. We want the injured employee to know upfront that we will be pursuing subrogation on behalf of, of the city or the employer in accordance with, with the appropriate state law. We don't want to hide the ball. We want them to know that those two claims are essentially working concurrently. They have their workers' compensation claim with us. They'll have their personal injury claim against the party who struck them. But they come back together because the employer has a right to collect against the, that same coverage for the benefits they have paid, both a lost time and the medical recovery benefits. So we want them to know that up front so that there's no surprises at the end. You know, people don't say, you you never told us this, that kind of thing. We, we try to make that clear up front so that we're all working in the same direction. And that's a time where, the, you know, the employee and the employer at that point each have claims against the third party. In a sense, you're working on the same side there to recover the most possible. Do you typically discuss presumptions in detail for public safety? On the TPA, when a claim comes in for a claim, generally speaking, these are heart and lung cancer disease claims where the state legislature has carved out a specific presumption that it is compensable. When we get that claim, try to explain to the employee that we're going to, when I use the term investigate, we're going to investigate what their diagnosis is and make sure that their service makes it covered under the law, uh, the requirements that the law has. 
And we try to do that upfront so they know what to expect, establish timeframes to do so, and they'll know how the claim is going to go. These are detailed investigations. It's not a simple matter, just like you know, a slip and fall is one thing, but this is gathering medical records, gathering dates of service in different areas, where they were might come down to whether or not they responded to specific events, catastrophic or otherwise. So we want them to know that upfront on their individual case and then at the macro level. And Dan, I think maybe you can discuss that piece and how we come into play there. Oh, sure. One of the things we try to do with orientation with public safety, and we do have separate ones for fire, police, and uh, sometimes sheriff on invitation, but uh, we try to go over a couple major things, what the presumptions are basically in the state of Virginia, which I'm sure are different from other states because we are a heart state and a lung state and cancer state that uh, that Brad mentioned. But uh, one is that to explain them how the role changes with a presumption because, you know, when an employee has a non-presumption injury, they have to present and show and demonstrate the work relationship so that we can accept the claim with the TPA. But in a presumption claim, the role is reversed. And we try to explain it to them so they understand it. It's not automatic. Now the employer has to basically do more of a thorough investigation on what are disqualifiers for the presumption, such for heart might be pre-existing disease or congenital defects, family history, or whatever. We also emphasize to them that they understand that a presumption claim takes a lot of medical record review. It's going to take significant time. And then we, we tell them some of the things we do to try to expedite things, such as we subpoena medical records and force that the hospitals and the doctors get the records to us much more timely. So that's something they really didn't know. It takes it takes quite a while that they use their medical insurance initially in most of these claims, and then they get reimbursed if the claim is accepted. But we also highlight some things, too, for them as well, such as the fact that uh, we have a couple of new things in the state of Virginia. One of those is PTSD for police, uh, well, yeah, police and well, public safety as a whole, as a matter of fact, and that one of the things that they need to know is that if they're going to get counseling, which is certainly encouraged, and we certainly want them to do that for those stress issues, but before they file a claim, they have to know that in the act, and we present this during orientation, that in Virginia, you have to have um, evidence of PTSD from a board-certified psychiatrist and or, well, it could be or, a licensed psychologist. So nothing wrong with getting counseling, certainly encourage that, but what they're going to file a claim, we just like to remind them up front of that so that, you know, they don't file a claim. It, potentially gets put on hold or disqualified, but they, you know, seek that higher level of verification and that'll help them move their claim. Obviously, if they're qualified for PTSD, we certainly want to be able to cover that and not waste a lot of time. So by knowing that information, perhaps they can get prompt, you know, care and, and have their claim evaluated more timely. And we also have a COVID uh, presumption now that's, uh, there you go. I'm not sure if it's going to time out or not, but uh, it does have a stipulation there that if uh, public safety is offered do um, opportunities for the vaccine and they refuse it, then it negates the presumption in their case. It doesn't mean they can't file a presumption claim, but it just means that it's, it's there's no presumption on it. So it's sort of that, that specific presumption basically encourages folks to go out and get their vaccination, which I think is a good thing. So, so those are some of the things that we cover in the presumption. Brad, you may want to add more to that. Yeah. Now, Dan, you did a great job explaining how it shifts the burden of proof that it's not automatically covered. It is presumed to be covered. And, you know, we try to explain it that we're not, our goal is not to rule out your coverage for this, whatever medical or, or psychological condition is. It's to verify under the, the act. 
and explain that to everyone. Because it's called a presumption, people make an assumption that I have this, my doctor said so, it's covered. And we just want to go through the process, make sure it's well documented, and let them know up front how it's going to go. And we've done this uh, on the individual level with uh, injured workers, and we've also done it at the departmental level, kind of going back to our earlier question, just explaining, here's what the act says, here's what we do to verify or rule out, and this is our process to do it, and we'll do it as, as swiftly as possible so that any injured worker gets the benefits he or she are entitled to under the law. As Dan said, we don't have an incentive to not cover a claim. That's one of those myths that's out there and persists, unfortunately. We have reached the end of our podcast. Thanks to our speaker and all of our listeners. Please visit the Prima website to hear other Prima podcasts, view upcoming Prima webinars, read Prima blogs, and learn about other Prima educational resources. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and our very own Prima Talk. Have an amazing day.